Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Matt Breitfelder, a partner and global head of human capital at Apollo Global Management where he focuses on attracting and developing extraordinary talent and creating an innovative, high-performance culture. Matt previously served as Chief Talent Officer and member of the Operating Committee at BlackRock and is the co-author of numerous Harvard Business School case studies on leadership. 
Our conversation covers Matt's upbringing at the intersection of business and psychology, lessons from high-stakes negotiations working for the U.S. Department of Commerce, and his path to a career focusing on the intersection of business performance and unlocking human potential. Along the way, we discuss techniques to optimize teams, individuals, and organizations that Matt's employed at BlackRock and Apollo, and close discussing how to apply these tools to smaller organizations and to assess human capital in investment firms. Before we get going, we're hosting our fourth cohort of Capital Allocators University in New York City on September 14th. Capital Allocators University, or CAU, is a chance to connect and learn with peers. We'll bring together a few dozen allocators, each with around 5 to 15 years of experience, to share frameworks on interviewing money managers, investment decision-making, leadership and management, and investing. And we'll engage with four fantastic chief investment officers, Jenny Heller from Brandywine, Kim Liu from Columbia, Anna Marshall from the Hewlett Foundation, and Brian O'Neill, recently retired from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. You'll get a chance to meet some great people and learn a lot in an information-filled day. Hop on our website at capitalallocators.com university to apply. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Breitfelder. Matt, thanks so much for doing this. It's great to be here. Why don't you take me back to how you started a path that ended up in this HRC to asset management? Well, it's not the most linear path. Like most people, I think I was shaped by my parents. I kind of consider my vocation being developed out of that Venn diagram of my two parents. So my father uh, was an entrepreneur and my mother's a therapist. And he instilled in me a passion for business, a passion for problem solving, how you grow a business, the challenges of growing a business, and the curiosity about what makes businesses tick how you get it right, how you get it wrong. And my mom instilled in me the curiosity of psychology. What makes human beings tick? How do we help this person get better? She still laughs about giving me Myers-Briggs when I was 10 years old and talking about the treatment programs of her patients. And she literally like bounce ideas off of me as a kid. I was my father's permanent intern every weekend. And I was like her thought partner in therapy. And I think in many ways, my career is simply that I learned those two languages. I'm equally passionate about those two things, and I kind of operate in the intersection of those two worlds. How did you find that intersection? Not in the most linear way. When I got to college, I immediately sat down with my advisor and talked to him about this. And I said, thinking about double majoring in economics and psychology. And he looked at me and he said, oh, that's not a thing. And unfortunately, maybe I asked that question in the wrong era, or I was just talking to the wrong person. I oftentimes reflect on that and wish I had discovered behavioral economics or organizational psychology when I was 18, but I didn't. That conversation led me to a couple of insights. One was, I just thought economics assumed rationality, and that didn't really make sense. So there had to be like a twist on economics that I was really curious about. The other observation, as I reflect back on it, when I took Psych 101, the difference between my mother's passion and my own was she was very focused on restoring people to health. And looking back on it, I realized, oh, my vocation is much more helping healthy people perform at the highest possible levels. What did you do out of college? 
Out of college, I immediately went to grad school at the London School of Economics. I was really interested in trade and the psychology of trade negotiations. I wrote a thesis about that when I was at LSE, and then a number of things fell into place where I ended up working in D.C. at the U.S. Department of Commerce as a junior international trade negotiator, which meant that I was in the room for some really pivotal moments that were happening during that era. The birth of the WTO, China joining the WTO, the introduction of the euro currency, being part of that and soaking that up and learning a lot about negotiation and about the art of the deal. What did other countries want? What did the U.S. want? What was the common ground of those positions? And how did you figure out how to do that? I found riveting. Spent four years doing that. I, I knew that wasn't my long-term calling. It was just a chapter. And then went to business school, hoping that being exposed to other additional you know, ideas and broadening my perspective would lead me to the ultimate path. What are the biggest lessons you took out of those types of high-stakes negotiations? I'm a rule of threes person, so I'll try to articulate it in three. Number one is preparation. These are very complicated negotiations because you're looking at all kinds of economic factors. You're looking at growth rates. You're looking at what could possibly be mutually beneficial. You're trying to understand who you're sitting across the table with. We wanted to go into those discussions knowing everything, every possible facet inside and out. What wonderful training as a 22, 23, 24-year-old. The second thing was building strong relationships with the folks on the other side of the table. So getting to know them, breaking bread with them, building the goodwill that you knew you were going to need when it got down to the finer points that were going to be the toughest. Because every negotiation would kind of live or die on those finer hard points. And so investing in the relationship was incredibly important and thinking about those relationships in multidimensional ways. And then the third thing is it's a long game. So in trade negotiations, the decisions you're making will resonate and reverberate for decades. And sometimes it takes years to get deals done, which is pretty frustrating when you're in the middle of it. But if you realize you're working a long game and your goal is to, in our case, to benefit U.S. companies to help them thrive, but also to do good things for the global economy, if you believe in free trade, that would be net beneficial more broadly that taking the time and putting in the energy so that you could hardwire those changes for decades to come and create economic benefit to lots and lots of people. I always went into those meetings when I was frustrated about the short term, trying to remind myself of it's a long game. So you're sitting at business school with a different prior work history and a different, call it meta objective of where you want to get potentially than a lot of the people around you. How did you think about using that experience to pivot to where you've gotten today? I definitely had a different background than most of my classmates, which I think is part of the magic of any business school, certainly is the magic of HBS. So I was soaking in just as many lessons from my classmates and seizing the opportunity to say, okay, what's it really like to work in investment banking? Okay, what's it really like to work in McKinsey? Okay, what's it really like to work at Procter & Gamble in Hungary? And you're picking up all those lessons and it's just giving you this great perspective and then at HBS, in two years, you're doing 500 cases. And so you're getting exposed to every possible type of business. And then the other great privilege is you're meeting incredible business leaders. And so I was 
directly doing cases with some of the most renowned CEOs of all time in my classroom with 80 people, debating them about their own business, which is such an extraordinary experience and such a privilege to be part of it. The biggest observation I had was as someone well-trained by my mother to be interested in what makes people tick, is I noticed this pattern across the CEOs who came to visit our classroom. And the pattern was they tended to land on human capital, talent, and culture as the most important part of their job and the most fulfilling part of their job. And particularly some of the retired CEOs would say, my legacy, my impact, the long game part of my work was talent and culture because that stuff could live on or those people I developed would thrive for many years to come. And I feel proud of that. And that's created sustainable value in my company, the most sustainable impact. And the best CEOs would say, and I spend an entire day every week focused on these issues. And I remember sitting in those classrooms saying, God, that sounds just so interesting. What if I could find a job where I was doing that 100% of the time that might be like the best job in the world and the best career in the world. But in that era of HBS, and I graduated 20 odd years ago, there weren't any HR classes. HR was not seen as a profession anyone from HBS would ever go into. And HR functions had been positioned as administrative, not strategic. And I wasn't exposed to opportunities in that space, but I had in the back of my mind boy, that would make a lot of sense. Like, I've got to figure this out at some point, what drives successful businesses and what drives successful humans to their highest levels of performance. I just had this hypothesis in the back of my mind. I just didn't know how to find it. Just like I, with my advisor in college, it was kind of dancing around the sweet spot. Same thing happened when I was graduating from HBS and I did what most HBS grads do, which is go into consulting. And the interesting thing that happens in consulting was I'm swimming in data, I'm looking at things analytically and I'm noticing other interesting patterns. So there's a lot of research on the failure rate of corporate strategies. And there's a lot of research on employee engagement. Two of the numbers that in that moment where these big light bulb moments where, okay, so the failure rate of most new corporate strategies is roughly 70% in all the studies that have been done on this. Why? Almost always the root cause of that failure is about talent decisions, about culture, about humans not wanting to go in a different direction and the company's inability to solve that human problem. And then when you look at employee engagement and we have rich data sets on this, and all those studies showed that when you measure employee engagement, which is a self-assessment that virtually every company on earth does these surveys where you're asking someone, are you not engaged in your job, mildly engaged in your job, okay, or highly engaged in your job? And so obviously the goal should be, we're all in the right jobs, we're fired up, ready to go, we're passionate, and we're not leaving anything on the table. That should be the goal for everyone. Only 20% of people rate themselves in that category. So I looked at that as, a, as someone who's trained in economics and said, okay, this is an 80% failure rate. Something is not working in the world of talent management if most people are not in a job where they feel fired up and ready to go. As an economist, I'd also look at a third, let's throw a third number at this. The intangible value of the market value of companies is like 70 or 80%. And most of that value is about 
the market's perception of your talent and your culture and your ability to continue to create value for a long period of time. So if you have an 80% failure rate in maximizing the potential of your workforce and the dominant part of your market value if you're a public company is intangible in the market's assessment of your ability to outperform over a long period of time, why aren't we more scientific about trying to solve that problem? And I'm sitting in a consulting firm saying, ooh, I really want to solve that problem. I think I finally figured this out. I remember having a conversation with my wife that night and I said, God, I, th I think I got my space. And she said, okay, great. So what do you want to do with the rest of your career? And I said, well, I think I'm a good consultant. I'm actually a good leader. I take it really seriously. I probably have a shot of becoming a CEO in this industry. I think I'd be a good CEO. And then when I retire, we should start a leadership institute together as a couple, and we should go help people live up to their potential. And we could do that in communities that really need that help because most people don't live up to their potential. And there's this whole toolbox of tools that my mom and HBS have exposed me to that you could use to help people do that. When I had that conversation with her, she looked at me and said, oh, that's a terrible plan. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, how is that a terrible plan? And she said, because you're more excited about the retirement phase of your plan than your actual career. And just because you could be a CEO doesn't mean you should be a CEO. Try again. And I said, oh, all right, let me try again. So I said, okay, another way to look at this is I'm looking at this data and these trends, and I'm looking at the opportunity of HR, human capital, talent management. And I think this is ready to be disrupted. You could solve the human problem and you could actually unlock a tremendous amount of performance in virtually every company on the face of the earth. And she said, okay, now that's interesting. You look fired up about that. What's the job? And I said, I have no idea. Does that mean <laughs> I'm, am I sitting in a corporate strategy function? with a talent management lens? Am I sitting in an HR function with a strategic lens? And I said, you know, I bet it's an HR function. I have no idea who's working on this in the world, but there's got to be somebody because it's just so obvious. It's not like it's that big of an insight. And she said, okay, great. So you should go do that. And I said, yes. And she said, write it down. And I wrote it down in a piece of paper. And I kid you not, a week later, I got a call from a headhunter. And this person said, I'm recruiting for a role for PricewaterhouseCoopers, the professional services firm, and I'm looking for someone who speaks strategy and understands coaching because our CEO wants to build a very innovative approach to leadership development that incubates new businesses, drives the corporate strategy of the firm, develops our finest leaders from all around the world, and helps them unlock themselves and unlock the potential of our company. And I said, are you a friend of Jen's? Is this a joke? <laughs> this can't possibly be true. And she said, who's Jen? I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, oh, this is really interesting. And I was working at 20th and K in Washington, D.C. at the time. And I said, where's the job? She said, well, they're building the Institute in D.C. And it's at 19th and K. And anyway, sometimes this happens when you get a moment of clarity in your life that it just clicks. And it absolutely clicked. I met the PwC folks. They're incredibly analytical, totally open-minded, thinking really big, very focused on innovation. And it was the perfect place for me to go because it was just on the cutting edge. Once you got there, what did you do in that role? We would be looking at new strategic space, trying to figure out how could PwC win in a new business? 
And the other part of the experiment was we'd take these teams of five-ish really talented global leaders from different countries and different disciplines across the company. And we would experiment with that deliberately very diverse team against hard problem. And so it was a dream job because I was analytically helping those folks pick apart the problem with the top leaders in our company as mentors and advisors. But then I'm also coaching them on how to deal with the inevitable conflict you have with a team with such Uh, cross-cultural diversity, different perspectives, quirks, all kinds of stuff that you need to analytically figure out how we win. And then how do you help these humans win? And how do you help prevent them from killing each other, but actually pivot that conflict into an economic force where they're actually benefiting from all of that difference and they're using that debate and they're harnessing all of their strengths against this problem. And then they're creating a new business that actually creates the next career path for themselves. So there's plenty of personal benefit and collective benefit in that. And I just became kind of a student of how do you unlock that to chase this big opportunity. When you had, say, a small team that you've brought together with clear, diverse backgrounds, skill sets, what tools did you use to get them rowing in the same direction? There's all kinds of different tools, and there's three dimensions to this. There's the organizational high performance, there's team high performance, and then there's individual high performance. And I think you're honing in on the team component of that. So when you're trying to optimize a team, there's all kinds of tools on self-assessment. So whether you're using Myers-Briggs, HBDI, DISC, and we used most of them in that work where you're helping people understand what makes them tick. And then you're sharing that with the team and helping the team understand what each person's bringing to the table and how they're wired so that you can optimize the collective work. There's some really interesting work at the Harvard Negotiation Project where they have done a lot of research on difficult conversations and they have a number of models there. You basically had The people at Harvard who teach about how to optimize a negotiation, turning those tools into things that teams and companies can use to get better, to actually be really good at conflict and to use debate very constructively so that it's producing something good and reducing unnecessary conflict. What are some of those unlocks? There's a number of different tools. I think the book's called Difficult Conversations. It's about de-escalating emotion and passion. Like there's a side that's drive. And if you're pointing people at the right goal, like you want to harness that. But then there's when passion or the passion of conflict is no longer helpful. And they have various techniques in that toolkit of how do you de-escalate a conflict to get people to move from that conflict being about a debate between two people to literally like move the problem to the side and say, okay, let's as partners look at that problem. And let's take our different perspectives and use that constructively. And let's move away from an argument being about identity or all of your personal quirks and history and say, no, 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 let's let's refocus that, which is totally understandable and very human and happens to all of us. And let's move it into a space that's much more constructive against the goal of the project especially with a really diverse team, which is the whole thing all of us should be working to master in the world today. At the height of an emotional trigger in a situation like that, did you have a favorite phrase or hack to bring down that de-escalation and move things into the direction you want? 
When any team gets stuck, what you're trying to do is shift the energy and reframe it. One of my signatures and my own personal style is I use humor a lot. It makes work more fun. It also helps disarm people. And sometimes you have to take that situation and just laugh about it. Are we really that fired up about this issue that doesn't really matter? And so that's probably my go-to move. Sometimes you just have to call a timeout and say, I think we're a little stuck. Let's go take a walk around the block. Let's come back in 15 minutes and let's just all recommit to shake that off. We actually did the same thing in government in those trade negotiations. When you're stuck and it's getting heated, the strategic pause is helpful. And you're actually just taking a break because it's no longer progressing. It's stuck and you got to shift the energy. Another move, we did this in government and we certainly did this at PwC, is change your location. Like just get out of that space. Because if the space is no longer productive, <laughs> move to a different conference room, move it outside. You got to get yourself into a context that is productive. You mentioned those three layers, organization, team, individual. would love to hear about maximizing the individual performance. The great thing about the individual side is the toolbox gets bigger and bigger every single day. So I look at things as simple as taking Myers-Briggs and thinking about how you're wired and the types of careers where your wiring is helpful. Look at the career paths that those people tend to do, and you're going to be really excited about that list <laughs> because it's natural. That's a very simple tool that's very profound. And when I'm coaching anyone, I always say, read two books, do what you are and StrengthsFinder 2.0. When you take the StrengthsFinder 2.0, and I'm a big believer that we need to root ourselves in strengths more than anything. And I think the world of leadership development has moved from the heroic model of become a living God that's great at absolutely everything to a much more realistic model, which is we all have natural gifts. We all have natural spikes. Focus on that first, because going from an A- to an A+, is where we should put all our energy. And going from a C to a B matters as well depending on what your job is. But if you're a C at something, the path from C to A plus is really long, really hard, really steep. The path from A minus to A plus is usually really clear and not hard to find. So that's the starting point. But then I think there's a whole bunch of other tools available where you just root yourself and get the basics right. Let's think about when am I at my best? What do I need to be the best? What career path fires me up the most? And then there's something about getting feedback and coaching on a constant basis. The great privilege of working a job like this is you get to work with some of the most extraordinary, successful people in the world. And I've noticed something about the most successful people. The most successful people have an unusual level of beginner's mind and humility because if they're at the frontier or edge of their profession or their craft, they know exactly what their gaps are. Because especially in investing, investing is a probabilistic game. So you're going to be wrong regularly. And those people are really hungry for what am I missing? What is my blind spot? What tool could I be using to get better? And they ask a lot of questions and they have this extra level of humility. You often see this pattern in rising stars who are really successful, but plateau. They often plateau because the confidence and ambition that got them there is exactly what holds them back from progressing any further. And Marshall Goldsmith is 
contributed a lot to this space. And his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, I think captures this really well, which is the curse of successful people of congratulations, you made it. But if you want to keep deepening your craft, you actually have to push into harder territory (laughs) and do harder personal work. Feedback is a breakfast of champions. Ask for more feedback and use more tools and put yourself in uncomfortable situations to get better and better and better. And I think sports psychology teaches us a lot about that peak performance issue of what are the habits that you need to keep pushing yourself and getting better at your craft. What did you learn from the world of sports psychology that you've transferred over? Over the years since I graduated HBS, one of my bucket list ideas was to co-author a case. And since I graduated, I've co-authored probably 20 cases. And it's just been a passion project as a hobby more than anything else to just keep my thinking fresh. And I recently worked with um, a professor named Ranjay Gulati on a case on Pete Carroll. And I have a lot of respect for Pete. And he's been a real pioneer. He's been one of the most successful coaches in history. He's one of the few that's won a national championship in football and a Super Bowl. Uh, But he also had a really interesting journey and, and reflected a lot on his failures, was famously fired by the Patriots and replaced by Bill Belichick. And coming out of that, he really clarified his philosophy. He was inspired by John Wooden, who I think was one of the pioneers in this space. Pete also learned a lot from two of the iconic sports psychologists, Tim Galway, who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis, and Michael Murphy, who wrote The Kingdom of Golf. And if you look at those books, those are about clarifying your mindset, having a system, being really disciplined around that system, and understanding that the mental game and the inner game, as Tim describes so well in his work, is just as important as the physical side. I think Pete has set up a system with the Seahawks that is all about competing at the highest levels for a long period of time. So if anything, my job and the task of HR is how do I help a company outperform over a long period of time? That's what Pete's doing in sports. His book literally is called Win Forever because the idea is you don't necessarily get to win the championship every single year. But if you implement the right system, you can compete at the highest levels over and over and over again. One of the most interesting things about his system is... He's very focused on caring and competition as the two most important ingredients of his system. So if you're always competing with yourself to be better and better and better, then competing against other people kind of takes care of itself. And as the coach, if you care about your players, you create psychological safety for them and you help them do the inner game work to clarify their mind, then you're unlocking their full potential So it's actually like a very human path into what you achieve on the field. And you either score the touchdown or you don't. And if you don't, that's not good. But I think Pete's idea is if that person feels psychologically safe, then they accept the coaching. They know exactly what they need to get done. And if they know I have their back and if they're doing the work on self-talk and all of these other techniques to clear your mind and get yourself into peak performance mode then I don't want to leave anything on the table. And so I'm so inspired by that space. And there's other coaches that have other techniques. But if in the corporate world, we have an 80% failure rate of people rating themselves a five, 
why wouldn't I be in that space to try to equip every single person who works in our company with the tools that work for them? And the customization and personalization is really important because we're all unique humans. We all have different drivers and strengths. You have to honor that and respect that and focus on that if you really want to help that human unlock their full potential and for them to deliver what you need them to deliver in your company. Asset management has long had the mantra that money managers may not be good people managers. How did you find your way from doing this in a real business where leadership and management tends to be more valued than we've seen historically in asset management? After PwC, I spent five years at MasterCard for their CEO transition when Ajay Banga took over. And that was a big transformation in an industry that was more tech and financial services. And working with Ajay to help optimize that culture and drive more innovation, which he was spectacularly successful at. And he now just took over the World Bank, where I'm sure he'll do great things as well. It was a really good bridge into asset management. To your point, everything we're talking about is in relatively recently introduced in asset management. I found it really interesting that asset management was so late in considering these tools. And that's uh, frustrating in a way because it's so surprising for such smart people in this industry to not be thinking about this. I think the fact that HBS and Wharton and Stanford and all the top business schools have also been late to it didn't help because most of the leaders of these firms were educated in the same era. So they just weren't exposed to it. And, you know, that's surprising and interesting but it's also an unbelievable opportunity. And I put my energy around, okay, if I'm the first person to introduce, <laughs> introduce some of these ideas, I'm happy to do that. What a privilege, because these tools will knock their socks off because they work, not because I'm special or I'm doing anything particularly special. I'm just playing the role of coach and trying to understand what the company really needs, what drives it, and then say, okay, which tools might work for this particular strategy or this particular culture or this particular situation? And, you know, I've certainly banded together with the progressive, innovative HR leaders and coaches all across asset management since the day I started in this industry, because I just want to spend time with the people that are trying to do the same type of work. And we should help each other introduce these tools because they're really good for the industry and they're only going to make these companies more and more successful. So when you got to BlackRock, how did you get started bringing these tools into what was already a large organization? The great thing about BlackRock is it's a founder-led company. They had had a winning formula. I think part of BlackRock's story is about M&A. So I think like most startups, they were skeptical about HR and skeptical about what we're talking about. And that skepticism is actually really helpful in a way because there's a really high bar to say, okay, BlackRock's been really successful. Why do they need to do any of this? Because it's basically working. I think the team at BlackRock became more and more open because as they were buying these big companies and integrating them, I think it became clear that the challenges were new and different and scaling required other tools. And I think it created more openness. The skepticism, I think, is one of their superpowers. So I embraced that skepticism and said, okay, great. You know, let's look at these spots where you know you need help and it's not working and we need to optimize. And let's just try some tools and they'll either work or they don't work. But if they work, we'll use them more. And if they don't work, we'll try something else. This industry has such smart people who are open-minded, but they're also really skeptical. So it's a high bar. 
And like anyone, they have to use these tools, work with them, try them, and see for themselves that they work. And then you create a poll, and then they're your greatest advocates. So I think, if anything, what I really learned there was this was all about co-creation. We didn't build anything alone. We had an incredible HR team. We attracted incredible HR talent who all wanted to be part of that because they could feel that we were doing something pioneering and different. But every single project we did was co-sponsored by the deep HR expert and a business leader who got it, who was interested in it, who was open-minded about it, who cared about it, who wanted to do something in that space and was willing to experiment with us. So everything was co-created, which also kept us honest because these things had to be really commercial and really focused and really tailored. So I was really good at the toolbox and always looking for new tools and testing new tools. But the business leaders cared about the company and wanted to make it better. I'd love to have you walk through an example of a team, a business unit that you worked with that wasn't working, that you saw through to some type of measurable impact, because ultimately this business is about performance. Two tools that work for every company on earth are an annual employee engagement survey and 360 feedback. And it sounds obvious. The employee survey is when your people tell you what they think is working and what's not working. And whether you agree with what they're saying or not, you should show them the respect to listen to that information and sit with it and really understand where they're coming from so you can be deliberate about the changes you want to make. And then 360 feedback is what are your peers and colleagues who work most closely with you? What are they seeing that works and doesn't work? And I'm a big believer in let's keep this really simple. How about pre and post 360 and how about pre and post employee survey? Great thing about both things is they flag the perceptions of people, which may not be a reality you agree with, but those are perceptions. That's really important and helpful information. So if an individual needs to change and they get a 360, come out of that 360, what are people validating that you should double down on? And what are people asking you to change? Don't ever focus on more than three things maximum because you need to be able to walk around thinking about it all day long and staying really open. Do the work of change, ask people for suggestions, and then six months, 12 months later, take another 360 and you either improve the perception or you didn't. Really helpful information. On an employee survey, very similarly, people will tell you, especially if they trust you and you keep the results confidential, they'll tell you exactly what they're thinking. And you can see on an employee survey which teams appear to be struggling and which ones don't. And you can hone in where you see the team that's struggling. Why is that team struggling? What is going on in that team where they're not optimizing what they're capable of? And you go in and you reset it. You get the team to recommit to a new direction. And then six to 12 months later, you do the survey again and they tell you how it's going. Keep yourself really honest about it. You're normalizing that we're all a work in progress and we're actually trying to be the best in the world at what we're doing. And that's really hard. <laughs> and you're saying, hey, it's okay to be stuck. That happens to all of us. Normalize it. I think another important part of this is clarity. When people are struggling, they can get stuck in that emotion. And I think our job as coaches is to say, okay, okay, let's honor that emotion. Let's listen to that emotion. But what's underneath that? Where is that coming from? What are you actually worried about? Ron Heifetz, who wrote Adaptive Leadership, has this wonderful phrase of like, you need to get on the balcony. So if you get on the balcony of what's happening, you're in the play. When you're in the play, it's kind of hard to see it. The task of anyone in a struggling team is, how do I get on the balcony and try to look at this objectively from an arm's length perspective? Clarify it. 
And then be really clear about, are people willing to do the work and sign up for what we all agree needs to happen or not? And then even if there's people on the team where it's not going to work out or that person's struggling and they're just not a fit for a team or a fit for the company, if you do that work in the right way, they're the first people to understand that and to accept it and to be treated with care and respect and clarity that they don't want to go in that from to, or that doesn't really work for them. They can't do their best work in that. What I'm trying to do as a coach is create a real sense of clarity, of caring that I care about these people. I want them to succeed. My intention is to help them do the best work of their lives and to figure out how do they do that here? How do they do that on that team in this company? How do you translate the improvements in how the team is functioning and the perceptions of how they feel about the team to performance in BlackRock's case, in the public markets, where it's not clear that the stocks and bonds are talking to the team and how they're functioning. Anything we're talking about in coaching, for P. Carroll, you're either winning the games or you're not winning the games. And any business has a scorecard of that. In investing, we have a very clear scorecard. And just like in sports, I think what you're trying to do is to optimize the controllable factors and try to reduce your stress on the non-controllable factors. Surprise, surprise, a team that's firing on all cylinders and it's really working and has really good constructive conflict. In my experience, you just saw better investment performance over and over again. I'm a big fan of Jim Collins' good to great. The goal for any company is outperformance over a long period of time. That book is so interesting because even though it's a bit, you know, it's 20 years ago or something, the concept is really durable because... The goal of any company is to outperform over a long period of time. And reversion to the mean is an almost unstoppable force. And it happens to every company, it happens to every team, and it happens to every human. So if we know that happens, then we're fighting against that every single day. And when you look at good to great in that study, and there's been a number of other studies, and they basically show the same thing, is you want to create a flywheel that's constantly challenging and constantly reinventing. And when Collins looked at the behaviors underneath that, he's basically showing that the behaviors they saw in the CEOs and the leaders who outperformed over decades, the thing he isolated was fierce resolve and humility together. I think you just see in the highest performing people where they're more open than their peers because they're looking for where the edge is going to come from. And I think having worked in asset management for 10 plus years now, um, I think the best investors are obsessed with investing, but they're also obsessed with team construction and the tools of optimizing a team. What was the impetus for you of moving from BlackRock to Apollo? I'd been at BlackRock for eight years. We'd built something really special. I had a great run there. I think I was just ready for my next challenge. And I had learned this work at PwC. I'd helped build it with Ajay at MasterCard. I'd helped build it at BlackRock. I wanted to do it again. And I was really attracted to Apollo and the alternative space. What an extraordinarily smart group of people. And I felt like the alternatives industry's been late to this. So asset management was late. And I think Alts was also late as a group of companies. And I felt like, okay, after eight years at BlackRock, I think I've learned how to do this. This is a different business model, but it's in the same kind of family. You're applying human capital tools in service of great investment performance and great commercial performance. And I found my colleagues at Apollo really open-minded, much more humble than I would have expected in alternatives, just like at BlackRock. 
need to see the data, need to see it actually work. The theory is kind of interesting. The impact is, <laughs> is, is what we're looking for. I was just exhilarated by the opportunity to work with the folks at Apollo and take a run at this. How did you think about the different reputations of the firms coming in to BlackRock, quite a different reputation than Apollo historically? Yeah, I mean, I think both had reputations for being challenging. And I think Larry had always been tough on HR and skeptical about all of this work. I think Apollo also specialized in complex investing and oftentimes investing in struggling companies that needed to be restored to health. So I just saw that as an interesting challenge and to say, wow, what an incredible track record. How do you achieve such great results. I want to help them figure out how do you keep evolving? What's missing in the culture? What does the next generation want? How is the industry changing? How's our business model changing? And I found an incredible group of people who were just so smart, so collaborative, so used to solving problems and debating things together and co-creating. So the co-creation point was really natural coming to Apollo and really high bar that you got to know what you're talking about. You got to be able to have real conviction one of our values at Apollo is challenge convention. You know, our coffee bar is called the Contrarian Cafe. We love people with different ideas. We love people who are challenging our thinking. So when I figured that out about the culture, I said, oh, this is great because I'm challenging the thinking. And that's respected as long as you do the work, as long as you're prepared, as long as you approach those conversations in the right way, as long as you keep an open mind that we're going to figure out the answer together as almost like a deal team mindset of how we crack these hard investment problems. The talent culture problems can be approached in exactly the same way. And I think that's worked really well. What have you found since you've been here? Look, it's been an amazing run. I think merging with Athene and creating a whole new approach to the industry, bringing together alternatives, asset management, and retirement services with Mark Rowan, our CEO's vision for the industry and for Apollo has been amazing because his vision for the future and how much we could grow in private credit and capital solutions and all of these new areas that are the Venn diagram between what Apollo is great at. Mark has a very clear sense of where he sees the puck going in the industry and where he wants Apollo to focus. And my job is to use all these tools to say, okay, great. How do we get the right people focused on that? And then how do we optimize at that company level, team level, and individual level that we've got people fired on all cylinders, that we're co-creating the culture that the next generation will thrive in, and that's humbling, just like the Marshall Goldsmith of what got you here won't get you there. How do we need to change and how do we need to evolve? And what's missing from the culture that would make it stronger and better? And if our goal is we want to be the best place to work in this space, we want to be the best in the world at what we do. We want to be the best place to be a partner in financial services. The other thing is when I joined, we had roughly a thousand employees at Apollo. And today we have over 2,500. We've attracted incredible people with new ideas. And that's been great for the culture, especially in these new businesses where we needed more expertise. That's really exciting because you can harness all of that new energy and those new ideas into the co-creation process. We started talking about this as a five-person team, and now you're talking about bringing in 1,500 employees over a couple of years. Yeah. How do you go about making sure that when all these new people come in, they're inculcated into this culture that you're trying to help create? I'm obsessed with, with how to figure that out. 
Mark loves the Peter Drucker quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast. So as CEO, he's incredibly focused on your exact question. We're hiring all these new areas of expertise as we grow. How do we make sure we're not diluting what's special about the place and the magic of our model and our winning formula? We want it to still feel like a small village where you have a personal touch, where you know your colleagues, where you care about your colleagues, where it feels like a small company, but where we can take on some of the hardest, biggest investment challenges in the world. And how can both things be true? And I think a lot about personal touch. I think a lot about Pete Carroll's concept of, I need to learn the learner. I need to learn what makes this person tick, which reminds me so much of what my mom taught me. And it's actually not the golden rule. It's a higher bar than that. It's the platinum rule. The golden rule is treat other people the way you want to be treated. Great way to live your life. Even better, especially as we're striving to be more and more diverse. The platinum rule is actually taking the time to understand what that person needs from you. Like, what do they need? How do they want to be treated? What drives them? What's their story? What's coming from their background and what they're contributing? And how do you tailor your style as a manager to get the best out of that person, for that person to feel like, okay, I belong here. I'm seen here. I can be authentic, be myself. And we love that at Apollo. We love difference. We love contrarians. We're still a small company. We're not that big. We can actually get this right. And as we become more global, we've got offices all around the world. And how do you, how do you create that culture in each place? What's the onboarding process for the individual new employee partner? It has a number of different elements. I think part of it is helping people understand how our business works. It's a complicated business. In some ways, it's getting more complicated. The world is changing, but people need to understand our business. So, you know, it's obviously training them about that, but it's just exposing people to it. We really want people to work across the platform. And if you're working in credit, you got to understand the magic of private equity and vice versa. That's one piece. The second piece is culturally, like the little things matter. The vibe we have in the cafeteria, the vibe we have in the coffee bar, the social events that we do the ways in which we bring the team together so people can feel the power of, wow, it's incredible to work with such smart, passionate people. So connecting people together on a human level, that's really important. And then I think the work that happens on a team is everything. You know, if you look at employee engagement surveys, everything correlates with the manager. So what's happening in that person's day job is really important. So you're trying to balance these three things of the curiosity of the business so they can understand what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. Feeling the power of the culture, regardless of what group you live in. And then three, this sense of, are we getting the team dynamic right? And I think you have to tend to that. And I think it takes time. When you're talking to people that are at much smaller, say, boutique asset management firms, what tools do you think a leader of one of those organizations can use effectively that may not have the breadth of resources or the depth of team that you see at an Apollo or BlackRock? Obviously, in a smaller firm, you're not going to have a big HR team. You might not even have an HR team at all. But the good news is everything I'm talking about is readily available to everyone. You know, these books that, I, that I've mentioned are easily accessible. For a firm that doesn't have an HR team, you got to use executive coaching. There's a number of amazing executive coaches out there who really understand asset management, who know our business and can help you. Using 360s and employee surveys 
in a small firm, you might say, oh, I don't need a survey because everyone just tells me all day long. You'd be surprised what they tell you when it's not attributed. You're just going to get more information. I call myself the walking suggestion box because I need people to trust me and to tell me exactly what they're feeling and to just take in that information in an unvarnished way so that I can understand and help figure out how do we make really good choices about what we want to do next in the culture. You can absolutely do that in the smaller firms. If you have a really great culture, you you are getting that information. I'd still do a survey because you're going to get something a little bit extra that will give you the insights. In the same way that when people who haven't had a 360 before, it's so helpful. Even when you're in a feedback-rich environment, when you sit down and intentionally fill out a 360, and when you get debriefed with a professional coach who really knows what they're doing, it just hits you differently and you get a different depth of insight. My advice to anyone is, especially for people who've been really successful, don't wing it. Have a plan. Be very specific about what you're working on to get better at. If you are not walking around with a list of one to three things where you are, you know you need to get stronger and better and you're not being vulnerable asking people for feedback and you're not working a plan, you're leaving way too much value on the table. From the investor, the allocator perspective, if you're looking at an investment management organization and trying to understand, are they doing the things internally with their people that are more likely to generate long-term success? What types of questions would you ask? Having written a bunch of HBS cases, I guess I'd start by saying, so what do you learn from your employee survey? Like, what do you guys think you're really good at? What are your employees asking you to focus on next? And then you'll find out if they have a survey or they have a point of view or if they're balanced in their thinking. Are they seeing clearly what's working in their culture and what needs to evolve? Because that tells me a lot about the hygiene of the company and are they doing the work to make me comfortable as an investor that they understand that the goal is outperformance for decades and that we're a work in progress on that. So I'd be asking about at the three levels, the organizational level, what are you doing as an organization to achieve outperformance over a long period of time? Like, what are those practices? How do you run your investment teams? And how do you make sure you're mitigating your blind spots? How do your ICs work? Take me into that so I can understand your practices, because as an investor, you're betting on those practices leading to outperformance. And then how does an individual stay sharp? How do your investors learn? You know, what are your habits? at those three levels, because that's what you're investing in. And I think companies that are really good at this, and I've worked in some of the bigger ones, so at our scale, there's a number of these tools we can use. The smaller ones are really good at this because they take those things really seriously. An investor is betting on long-term outperformance. One of the other points I'd make is the toolbox is growing, but there's a lot of tools that can work. So I'm not that dogmatic about which tools you need in specific situations. The biggest question I'd be asking is, are you using tools or not using tools? <laughs> and then which ones are you using? It, it tells you a lot. What's on the leading edge of the, the new tools that you see as you look out over a couple of years will have an impact on these organizations? I'm looking at sports psychology. I'm looking at what's happening in the Valley. I'm looking at what's happening in the professional services firms because you're getting interesting information there. A friend of mine runs something called the Neuro Leadership Institute. He's doing a lot of brain research and high performance, and his name is David Rock. I, I really respect his work because there's a lot of science on feedback. Feedback is the breakfast of champions, but poorly delivered feedback oftentimes makes performance worse, not better, because we know how humans react. 
And if you're not tuning into that individual human and you're treating it like an engineering problem, you're just as likely to make performance worse, not better. So those insights are really important. And and if we're scientific about it, we can actually crack it because it's pretty straightforward. I think people analytics is a really helpful piece of this. So inside of companies, we're getting better at better at, at using our own data to understand what really drives performance. And Google's been a pioneer of this. Prasad Sethi at Google has taught me a lot about this. So they ran studies where at Google, there's a project called Project Oxygen, where their hypothesis was maybe managers are so bad, we should just eliminate the role. So let's test what are the characteristics of a great manager and does it even matter? And they found what I think we'd expect them to find, which is a great coder reporting to a good manager. If you move them to a bad manager, their performance collapses. So this actually really matters. And the number one thing in their study was managers who know how to coach, who play chess, not checkers, get better results. Their other study was called Project Aristotle, which was about what are the characteristics of a high-performing team? Psychological safety must be inherent for a team to fulfill its total potentials for performance. Seems like an obvious point. But if you have debate but not psychological safety, there's a lot of wasted energy. So some of this is about energy management. And how do you redirect that energy that could be wasted because you're triggering something psychologically in someone that's not being spent helping the team optimize or helping us invest better and better and better? I'm really interested in that. How do I reallocate that energy and move it from fight or flight or whatever is happening to something much more productive. So it comes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And a lot of people in the investing world would say, that's just warm and fuzzy. What does that have to do with anything? I'm talking about hard things. You could reframe that and say, actually, what we're talking about today is about the hard stuff, not the soft stuff. Like this is actually really hard. And if you care about being great, and if you care about being one of the best of all time, and if you care about outperforming over and over and over again, like Pete would say, win forever. Okay. If you want to be in the win forever business, all of this stuff is on the table. All right, Matt, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I am obsessed with music. My father is an amateur jazz musician. I grew up in Chicago, so I spent my whole childhood seeing the greats. So I find music incredibly relaxing. I love improvisational music. My father's 84 years old. He plays a Monday night gig in an Irish pub in Chicago every Monday night. He is the youngest member of his band. (laughs) (laughs) And he's a great inspiration to me. I'm not particularly skilled at playing, but I'm seriously considering attempting to improve my skill because it gives me great joy to be around music, listening to music, participating in music. So I thank my father for that gift. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is people who patronize other people. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? On the investment side, my biggest pet peeve is following the crowd. I'm trained well at Apollo. We're contrarians. (laughs) The crowd is usually not interesting. What's one mistake that you made that you'd never make again? I would say ignoring my intuition and not listening to it. Intuition challenged by other people is gold. Ignoring my intuition because I started believing other people were right and I had to set that aside. It's just a terrible error. It's such important information. I don't ever want to ignore my intuition. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Two people that stand out. When I was growing up, 
my best friend's father had a really interesting career where he tried a bunch of different things. And he landed on his calling at the age of 63 as a Jungian therapist. And he was one of the older dads. And so he had already discovered this when I was growing up. And he would give me Myers-Briggs tests and other things and say, Matt, my one gift to you is I want to help you discover what really fits you so that you get energy from it and you can skip all the mistakes that he made to find it earlier. And that was such a great gift in my teenage years to have someone teaching me that and helping me see that and helping me find that and making it very clear that that was the goal. I'd say the second person is my wife, Jen. She helped me unpack what I really wanted to do in my career and in my life at the pivotal moment. And she has this very unusual gift of warmth and care. And I know that she has my back, but also holding me to a higher bar than anyone else in my life (laughs) and challenging my thinking. And I'm so grateful to her for that. But that mix, I also learn a lot from her and want to role model what I see in her that she's so good at. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My father's from Iowa. I think what he instilled in me, which I use to this day, is doing things properly, the Midwestern humility and sensibility, and just like show up on time, be on time, get things done, do things the right way. It's not about you. You're in service to something. I think that's what I took away from my father. My mom's from Sweden. And so she always taught me to have a global perspective, an open-minded perspective. She was raised by an immigrant carpenter who felt that his work was like the greatest calling of his life. And he instilled in me that you should find a job that gives you so much joy that you're thinking about it all the time and that you live to practice that craft. And my mom found that same thing that her father had taught her as a therapist. And she was a therapist in the Veterans Administration working with vets on really hard issues like PTSD. And she always used to tell me, I would pay them for this job. Like this is such a deep sense of purpose. From my mom, you know, she taught me that work it should be a calling and you should have a deep sense of purpose. Uh, my father taught me much more of work is an obligation and a duty that you need to fulfill the right way. And I think both lessons were equally helpful. All right, Matt, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? To be very clear about how you want to show up in the world and don't over-rotate on other people's opinions. It's important to take in the information of other people's opinions, but be driven by your own authentic formula as your North Star. Matt, thanks so much for sharing all these lessons and maximizing teams and performance and everything you've done. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.